welcome to Just a Spoonful, the podcast that is young and fully sick. Everyone you hear speaking on this podcast is living with a disability and or chronic condition, like me, your host, Caitlin Plyley. Hello, how are you going? Today is the last day of ME Awareness Month, in case you weren't aware. <laughs> um, you can find out more about myalgic encephalomyelitis, or as it is sometimes mistakenly known, chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, by listening to the previous episode of this podcast, May the 12th Be With You, which was a special short audio documentary episode all about what's happening with MECFS in Australia. Uh, you can check it, on, check it out on iTunes or go to justaspoonfulpodcast.com if you want to find out more and raise some awareness. But this episode, I have a very exciting guest. Her name is Anna Sparger Ryan, and she is a writer and di- digital strategist from Melbourne and debut author as of today, like today. Her book came out today, her debut novel, The Paper House, and I am holding a copy in my hot little hands. Listen to that. So fresh. We talk about what it was like writing a novel when you've got anxiety and depression and you're writing about anxiety and depression and she talked Anna talks about what she was intending with this novel I wanted it to be almost a study in the hereditary nature of mental illness and the different ways that mental illnesses are affected and impacted by other people and especially by the people that raise you Readings Bookstore just yesterday called Anna a young writer to watch, so it's already making some pretty big waves. Anna is the internet's own anxiety aunt. She co-hosts a podcast called The Anxiety Shut-In Hour, with, uh, and they're, on Twitter their handle is at anxietyaunts, so you can tweet them some questions about anxiety. And Anna's pieces on mental illness for The Guardian, Daily Life, and Seizure are widely shared. Even her selfies go viral, which we talk about in the podcast. Anna lives with a collection of mental health conditions, including OCD, PTSD, anxiety, and elements of psychosis. So she's very interesting to talk to about this. And she also lives with an internet famous cat. We talk a lot about chocolate and cats at the beginning here. So you just have to bear with us further through that. Um, But we also talk about some really interesting stuff like, I mean, not that chocolate and cats aren't interesting, but we also talk about oversharing on the internet. And later we get to her actual novel. (laughs) Uh, This was recorded a couple of months ago. So Anna, Anna's book had sort of just gone. It was still in the process of like being printed and prepared for its release date. And she was uh, a bit anxious about what was going to happen. And we have some really, a really interesting chat about what it's like to realize a lifelong goal and how it can, your reactions to that can be maybe, maybe not what you expected. Uh, and we also talk about what workplaces can do to better support people with mental illnesses. Anna is very warm, very funny, and has a lot of things to say about, um, making the world basically more supportive of people with mental illnesses. Um, So without any further ado, let's get into it. Uh, Let's hear from Anna Sparger Ryan.
I'm interested in your relationship with chocolate because <laughs> your blog header says that you are 90% chocolate, which I mean, is already a reason to love you. Um, <laughs> but also that this morning you tweeted that you've had to give up chocolate again because it's fried your brain bones. So yes. can you please um, tell me what's the deal with chocolate? Um, chocolate's the only caffeine that I ingest. So I don't drink coffee or tea or soft drink, which is a conscious decision. I can't process caffeine properly. Um, it really heightens my anxiety a lot. So mm. chocolate is kind of the only remaining caffeine that I get. And <laughs> I have a tendency to binge on it as well, which is not very helpful. So it's like taking about 15 no-dose tablets and then going, <laughs> why does my brain feel so weird? This is weird. <laughs> So I can't control my tendency to do that. So, uh, yeah, I, I didn't have any chocolate for five days last week and I felt yesterday so much better and then today went, oh, well, I feel heaps better. So I ate a whole bunch of it. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's bad, no. So I just I think it's partly a matter of just impulse control um, but also, yeah, I think the fact that it is the only caffeine that I get probably does make a difference to it it's like a it's almost the only stimulant that I have I also don't drink alcohol um I quit smoking five or six years ago so chocolate is sort of the only vice that I have um so well it's such a good vice I know it's my favorite thing in the entire world but um including like my children and my yeah yeah chocolate is but um yeah I just if children could make us feel as good as chocolate makes us feel, like if they could light up that part of our brains, then no, I'm sorry. I'm sure no, children true. are great. Well, look, they are great, but it's mostly because they can bring chocolate to me. <laughs> so now that I don't need them to do that anymore, I'm just, you know. Um, yeah, so, you know, that's my relationship with chocolate is um, is not probably very healthy. So It's stormy. It's a stormy. Yeah, it is. And affair. the fact that it, the fact that it is the only vice that I still have, um, that has an impact on my mental health as well. I've gone to my psychologist in the past and said to her, I want to stop eating chocolate not because, you know, I don't like it or because I want to lose weight or because, you know, all these reasons, but actually because I don't like the way I feel like I can't control mm. how much of it I actually want to eat. Um, and, you know, on a Monday morning that I'll sit down and, and go, okay, I've got, I've got like four blocks of chocolate. I'm just going to eat all of them, Mm, Um, which is, it's not healthy behavior. It's more the behavior of it that I don't like than anything else. Yeah. I have the same thing and it frightens me because I'm like, why, why? Like, I I feel like I have such good self-control in so many other areas of my life. And then when it comes to chocolate, it just, it's gone. The self-control is just gone. And (laughs) uh, I recently, like this year I've tried, I've I've tried, I've tried to quit sugar (laughs) Yeah. which was like, like you say, it's like my last vice. Like I don't drink alcohol, I don't drink coffee, black tea, any of that stuff. I'm the same as you. Caffeine just doesn't, it's not my mm-hmm. friend. And um, last night my partner um, busted out like a box of celebrations on oh, the no. couch <laughs> and I actually started having a physical reaction and I got mad at him and I was like, and people don't understand because they're, uh, but I'm like, if, if you're sitting next to an alcoholic while you're watching Lost, 
you don't you don't just like bust out a <laughs> bottle of vodka and start yeah. having little sips i was just like the thing is he was like just have one and i was like i can't yeah that, that's not a thing that happens yeah i'll eat the whole uh, box and then i'll feel really awful yeah and i mean i feel like my behavior is that way for lots of things i feel like um you know i sort of have that addictive personality that people talk about where once I quit smoking I knew that if I had one I would go out the very next day and buy a whole pack and smoke all of it and that you know once I stopped drinking alcohol I knew that if I had one drink then I would it's not I wasn't um it wasn't even so much that I couldn't control the behavior it was more like a floodgate like once I opened it I couldn't control it. And I've just said it wasn't controlled, but then it was. So with chocolate, if I quit eating chocolate for about five months last year and wow. I didn't really miss it. But as soon as I had one, I had a friend who actually sent me without realizing I had stopped eating chocolate, a really beautiful box of cocoa black chocolates. Like mm. she had hand selected every single one. No. And <laughs> I thought, well, you know, these are really beautiful, expensive, delicious chocolates, very rich. I'm sure I can just have one. Oh, God, I've got, just, uh, I've got tears yeah. in my eyes. <laughs> so I had one and then I thought, well, I mean, two's not that different from one. <laughs> and it just spiralled out of control. So, you know, uh, yeah, I think that's what would happen if I re-engaged with most of my sort of ugly vice-type habits. So I just yeah. can't. I've just had to eliminate them. Yeah. Just, you know. I've always, like, taken pride in the idea that I have really good self-control, like, and that it's, like, a family trait, like, that my granddad put down cigarettes one day and just never picked them up again. Yeah. And I've just realised talking to you that, like, actually, isn't it the sign of having an addictive personality yes. that you have to quit it cold turkey, that you have well, to just stop <laughs> I've often thought about that because I I did the same thing as your grandfather. I one day woke up at four o'clock in the morning and my lungs were really croaky and rattly. Mm-hmm. And at that point I went, I have to quit smoking. And I put them in the bin the next morning and I have never smoked again. But That's it's because, well, it is great in the sense that, hooray, I quit smoking. That's great. But it was less great in the sense that it was because I knew that I couldn't do it in moderation. Yeah. I feel like been a better reflection on the strength of my character if I'd been able to say all right I've decided I'm only going to have two cigarettes every day or I'm only going to have five on the weekend or whatever and had actually been able to do that instead of you I have to quit this in all possible ways right now otherwise I'm going to definitely fall back into my old habits which is yeah, I don't know if that's better. <laughs> it doesn't sometimes yeah. feel better. No, that's a really good point because, like, I've had to quit sugar because sugar is my, like, oh, I don't know. My, <laughs> like, in the last episode I had um, Leah Mush who has obsessive compulsive disorder and she called yeah. it her huntress. And I'm yeah. like, sugar is my huntress, you know. Yes. Um, and it's tough because um, – so I've got like a, like a healthcare team, you know, around mm. me, like for all different things. And like my nutritionist is like, all right, we're going to quit sugar. Sugar is really bad for you. Um, for me, like specifically as well. Mm. Um, and I was like, okay, it's going to be really hard. And I went through it and I went through that like month or two of just like hell and just feeling <laughs> yeah. angry all the time and not knowing <laughs> why and um, breaking those habits and stuff. 
And then my and then like my doctor, because like, other stuff has been going wrong with my body, mm. my, my GP was like, why don't you try drinking a Gatorade a day for two weeks and see how that goes? And I was like, doc, you don't understand. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> I already quit. Yeah. And so I've been back on, I've been back on sugar with the Gatorade and it's like, yeah. Then when like, you know, my partner brings out the chocolates, I was like, I was like shaking. And like, I was like, starting to like, like sort of like grab my head and go, no, get it out of here. And he's like, okay. And he like put it behind a cushion and I was like, no, get it out of the room. Get it out of the room. Uh, like you have to actually leave the whole suburb and go and put it somewhere. I'll never find it under a tip or something because I can smell it. Drive up Mount Kutha and bury it under the tallest tree. Like, no, not the tallest tree. Cause then I could find it. Just any tree. Like, a really indistinguishable tree. <laughs> Oh, it's so tough. And like, it's so hard um, because when you have like, I have anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder and, and chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, and a couple things, uh, a couple other things. And like, it's just when you're already like, so you just have to, when you have a chronic illness, you just have to like tighten up your habits and your lifestyle so, so much. And it's just so hard to give up those little vices. Like, it's like... The stuff that makes you feel like yeah. you want to get up in the morning. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I've done is um, cacao powder. Is good. It just makes me depressed to even think about it. I, just, <laughs> <laughs> I need milk and sugar and cocoa all together in the same kind of solid form. It doesn't even because I've tried replacing it with chocolate mousse, which is made from chocolate, so it's not <laughs> like it's pretend chocolate. But even that, there's something about the texture of chocolate that I need. Oh. Like hot chocolate isn't good enough. Even even baked chocolate goods, brownies and stuff, just it's don't. I could eat eight brownies and go. But I just really wanted like one Freddo. And now I've had eight brownies and I still <laughs> want one Freddo. <laughs> That's so. like I, would, I, I used to bake huge um, batches of chocolate chip cookies. That was like my specialty. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, you know, I'd make them gluten-free because I'm gluten-free. That's another, like, thing. Yeah. It's so hard. Just, like, I look at a croissant and I'm just like, <laughs> get it out of here. Um, but, um, yeah, I would eat, be eating, like, I would sit down and eat, like, ten uh, big chocolate chip cookies because, mm-hmm. you know, my parents are American. They taught me how to make big cookies. Yeah. And um, it was just so I could get those little, like, choc chips. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's like, it's, it's, um, hereditary. Cause my mum used to just go into the cupboard and get like the choc chips, like the cooking choc chips that yeah. you would use for so, and she would just eat them out of the bag. Oh, I do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. My partner pretends that he likes them in his scroggin. So I don't know, scroggin is like trail mix and oh. he puts them in that, but then just picks out the choc chips from it. Like yeah. you're supposed to eat your little dried cranberries or whatever. It's like, I, yeah, but I'm eating trail mix. <laughs> it's not trail mix if you just eat the chocolate. Like the fact like- that it comes out of the bag of trail mix <laughs> doesn't make it. It's got like um, peanut dust on it. So it's <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been yeah, some, uh, you know, now I can't remember what I was going to say. So you can just cut that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. 
this is gonna happen a lot I've, i'm very tired so it's gonna be a lot of uh i don't know what i was saying um um i have another so okay we've we've talked for uh 14 minutes about chocolate this is good um actually something else i want to ask you about um ironically it should be the answer to my questions but i want to ask you about ask fm Mm. Um, because I like, I was reading through your ask FM this morning and I was like, oh, a lot of the questions I was going to ask you are probably answered on here. <laughs> so I should just send people to this link uh, and we can talk about chocolate the rest yeah. of the hour. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but I just, I, I don't use ask FM and I know that you use it quite a bit and I just want to know what the attraction is. Like, how is it different from Twitter and Facebook and why, uh, like why? I think... I think for me, quite a few of the questions that people want to ask me are ones that they're not comfortable asking and attaching their name to, especially the mental illness ones. Uh, so when yeah. people have a question about, uh, you know, a way that they're feeling or want some insight into how I feel or things that they can do differently or those sorts of things, that it's a big ask to also then attach your name to it. Mm. So in that sense, I use it because... I think it can be helpful for people to get more information without also having to sort of, you know, reveal themselves as a mentally ill person or to kind of come out as a person who has a mental illness or whatever. Um, it can be quite effective in that way. And then I can also answer these questions without necessarily having to consider the particular person, especially if it's someone that I know, um, which is quite helpful. The The idea that, People also use it to abuse you. It's sort of a bit, it's a bit of a novelty, actually. I, I mean, I get, I cop various sorts of flack through Ask FM about different things. Uh, and it's actually kind of hilarious, the idea that someone thinks they're really tough in their kind of anonymous way. I get quite a few questions that are sort of hurtful from people who then say, you know, I follow you on Twitter or we've known each other for ages or whatever. And I think, well, that's nice. And way to just approach me like an adult, but um, it you know it does have a certain level of entertainment that, even though it can be a bit you know a bit nasty. Um, yeah, that is yeah. weird that people make a point of saying like I follow you on Twitter and I, and we've like been in touch for years, but then they go and ask you this question anonymously, isn't it? I know, and I sort of think like I'm I feel or I hope that I'm an approachable person who kind of puts out enough of herself to make people feel like I'm open to talking about pretty much anything. Mm. So the fact that someone would deliberately avoid having a conversation directly with me about it has always struck me as a bit strange because yeah. I don't think I've done anything to demonstrate that I wouldn't talk to them about it if they wanted to, to kind of to my face or whatever the Twitter equivalent is. Yeah. To Sorry. my avatar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And my, my direct messages on Twitter are open as well. Um, oh, right. So they can always, you know, ask there even if I'm not following them or whatever. But, I, yeah, that has often struck me as strange. It's a little bit like it's less about how it's less about how you feel about it and more how, like, they what, how they think people will perceive them for asking the question, I guess. Yeah, I think that's or, or how I, you'll perceive them. Yeah, and I think there's a bit of a control bit in it as well, that the whole notion of being able to troll someone anonymously um, you know, I've often sort of thought I'd like to troll my friends anonymously. That's a terrible thing to say, but just <laughs> there are things that I would like to say to my friends sometimes that I don't feel like I could say to them actually with my name. But, um, yeah. 
but I think for a lot of people the Ask FM thing and the reason that probably that it gets a lot of um, like fetish spam and things like that is that there is a power element in being able to demand that someone answer a question without having to tell you what your motive or tell them what your motives are or who you are and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I find it a very interesting kind of character study, actually, mm. like a human nature study, Ask FM. I think it's fascinating. Mm. You recently had someone ask you on Ask FM, or not so much ask you, it's just kind of um, offer their opinion about you, you, I'm using air quotes here, oversharing on the internet. Yeah. What, what is your, I know that your reaction was actually like, because they were, they were one of those people going, oh, I follow, I follow you on Twitter yeah. and stuff. Um, what's your reaction to the notion of someone over, like being told they overshare? Um, the first reaction I had to it really was that in regards, because this question specifically pertained to oversharing, my children on the internet, mm. which is something that I don't actually think I do. I don't um, think you do. Yeah, I like I, if I did, I would own it, and I don't think I do. So I don't know whether I'm just kind of delusional or, um, uh, yeah. I'd yeah, never, delusional, yeah. No, we'll go. No. I am. Like <laughs> clinically I am delusional, uh. but in this, in this circumstance I'm not sure. Um, I, I've been writing about myself on the internet since I was 14, so that's nearly 20 years ago. Wow. And it's so much a part of how I process information and how I relate to other people that I don't even know what oversharing for me would be anymore, really. I mean, pretty much everything that I experience ends up on the internet in one way or another. And, I mean, I try to be considerate of the people around me and how they would feel about having their particulars on the internet. You know, I don't like to talk at length about relationships with people that I have when I know that they wouldn't want them to be public. Mm. But in other situations, it's very much a part of just the person that I am. I, I you know, started using the internet to we called it journaling then um and it was <laughs> we had we had um we all had vanity domains isn't it? like the between about 1997 and 99 i guess and we all had these vanity domains that we had to sort of beg for our parents to get us and then they all had a journal on them and we used different we used a thing called movable type and there was another one called gray matter and um and we had our own websites where we sort of just put everything we were doing so if you look hard enough, my entire year 12 journal is still on the internet. And uh, it's oh, basically... And I am going to look for that. <laughs> oh, my God. It's a, it, oh, I read it. I just think, you stupid idiot. It's like, um, Brendan's being a real bitch. It's like... <laughs> it's like that. It's really like, oh, my God, he said he was going to go the formal with her and then he isn't and she's my friend and he's my friend and I don't know what to do and my boyfriend is like, oh, my God, they are such dickheads and you're such a bitch for getting involved, right? And it goes on and on like that. And but, it's like they haven't even considered that I... I've got an English essay due on Monday. <laughs> it's really very much like that. But then actually what happened was one of my friends found it and I'd sort of been espousing all of this wisdom about what my friends in year 12 should really be doing with their lives. And um, that, yeah, some shit really hit the fan. Then, you know, quite... <laughs> um, but that's, I mean, it sort of was that, this sounds horrible, but that was sort of secondary to actually the point of what I was doing, which was understanding how to express myself. Mm. Um, so 
year 12 was a really hard time for me. I moved from Adelaide to Melbourne with my family at the beginning of year 12 and I before that had been at the same school for 12 years. Yeah. So I'd moved with not knowing anybody and to a new school and with no friends and kind of in a new place and um and I was very depressed and I had this then this horrible abusive boyfriend Mm -hmm. and so writing it all down had really become then a way for me to understand what I was experiencing and how I was working through it if at all and I I mean I wasn't doing a very good job of working through it so Mm -hmm. um having my friends find it was almost then a way to start a conversation about like how shit I was feeling, what a shit time I was having. So that's always been, I mean, probably I don't need to do it publicly. Like in in retrospect, maybe I should have just written it on paper and left it in my bedroom, but. To burn later. That's my plan. (laughs) But there is an element for me, especially now um, of, how important it is for me to have the follow-up interaction with other people to help me to process stuff. Like, is this something that only I do on my own and I'm the only person who's having this experience or is this something that lots of people are having and is there a way we can sort of buoy each other with our different but shared experiences and, um, you know, do people think that I'm an idiot for feeling this way or do I – it helps me to understand where – because I have – so. One of the symptoms of my various mental illnesses is is a kind of psychotic symptom. So my attachment to reality is not always excellent and actually this kind of activity helps me to better understand it. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so in terms of overshare, I mean, yes, I do massively overshare, but uh, it's sort of <laughs> I don't know what I would do if I didn't. So it's like a, it's like a form of self-care. Really? It is. I think so. I'll just keep doing it. I don't know. I look at, actually don't really even care. Like I, my mobile number is on the internet and my address is easy to find on the internet. I just don't care that much, which I hope is not kind of famous last words when someone then comes and murders me in my bed, but <laughs> it's not privacy. Sorry for laughing at that, no, by the way. <laughs> just, I was just my, like, you're so lovely. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Why would anyone, why would anyone be like, Oh, she talks about anxiety. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) She has to go. She's got to go. (laughs) Um, For my own personal privacy is not that important to me, but it has become more important as uh, my children have got older and that kind of thing. I've written before about choosing whether or not to share things about my children, and I do run past my children the things that I say about them. Um, They're nearly teenagers now, so it's important for me that or important to me that they are able to make decisions about their own privacy online in the same way that I was. And for me, it was, I'm going to share everything. And I mean, you know, like to the point where I was sharing naked pictures of myself and just all the information you could ever want to know about what was happening in my brain and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was my choice and they have to also have a choice. So I think, in the past probably three or four years, I've shared a lot less of what my children are doing and pictures of them and things for that reason. Mm. So, yeah, do I don't think, know. I mean, no, that, that's really interesting. And do you think your um, attitude towards how much you share on the internet is necessarily going to have to change um, after your your first novel is coming out soon? 
Uh, and it's probably, I mean, I assume it's going to raise your profile. Is, is that going to change things? <laughs> it might raise my profile. It's, it's really... Fingers crossed. No. I, mean, I hope so. I hope it sells more than kind of 10 copies. Um, <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to buy one. So that's oh, one. Well, thank you. If you could buy 10, that would be really helpful. Listen, I don't have a much, don't have much money. <laughs> Do you know how expensive gluten-free food is? <laughs> I do, I do. I do. And books, are, you know, 30, it's thirty two ninety nine. So, I mean, I've been saving all my money so that I can go and buy all the copies of it. <laughs> so I can go to a second print run. But, um, oh, yeah. second print run. Oh, that's just saying those words. Know, that's all we really hope for. Well, that's all yeah. I really hope for. That's the dream. For it to be sold out. Go, yeah. oh, no, no, there's no copies anywhere. Better go to a, you know. Um <laughs> I don't know. I've thought about this quite a bit. I do. I find that the more I write in a more visible way, so with some articles that I've written for, you know, places that people actually read, and I did. I've done a couple of interviews on national radio and that kind of thing. Um, that I do expose myself to more diverse. Uh, responses to the stuff that I'm saying and that can be detrimental not so much to my privacy but to my mental health I mean I've had you know I've had people who have taken it upon themselves to really write quite vitriolic and abusive stuff to me Um, and I don't really care in the sense that they're obviously you know a knob who just is doing it for kicks and that's fine but it does eventually wear down my my kind of mental stamina. Mm. So I need to, I think if anything, just consider my own mental safety in opening up more than uh, what I'm prepared to have people who I don't know assess, you know, if I start. And, I mean, I think, um, like I wrote an article last year that or a piece that was about anxiety Um, And it was really just kind of an overview of what my anxiety is like. And it got shared, I think, 40,000 times or something. And all of a sudden I had this different and new audience that didn't know the context of what my anxiety was about. And luckily it was most of the feedback was very positive. But where it wasn't, I felt quite attacked. Like, hey, you don't know what it's like or... Um, you don't know how much other kind of good stuff I try to do for the, you know, mental illness generally. And um, I think when you can't be either sitting next to someone and explaining yourself, which is essentially what Twitter is. So Mm, mm. I can't be also interacting with someone on a different platform. And so the only way they have relating to me is this one thing that they're reading. I need to make sure that what that opens up to them is not, um, then a platform for kind of attacking the way that I feel. Uh, and I think the book is a bit like that. You know, I if people I know read it, I think they're going to understand where I'm coming from and why I've written it and what it's about. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I sang a lot of Disney songs this morning, so I sort of lost my voice. <laughs> I, saw, I saw your tweet that you were singing. You were like, I have sung too many Disney songs to Norman. Yeah, and I, I really did. <laughs> So I guess I have two two things that I want to talk about off of that is uh, a which songs because I, I I would love to know and b I would love if you could explain to people who Norman is and why that matters. Sure. 
Yeah. Um, Cause Norman matters. <laughs> well, he thinks he does. <laughs> so no- Norman's my cat. He's a British short hair, but he has a long haired gene. So they used to outcross them with Persians to get their faces flatter. What? Um, yeah. Sorry. So every now and then they get a long haired one and that's what he is. So his breeder sort of sent me an email saying, look, I was going to keep him, but it turns out he's a reject. It's, it's like oh. a, fa- it's a fault in cat showing. So a breeder would never keep a long-haired British short hair because they can't show them and they can't breed them. So but she's kind of, so beautiful. He is exceptionally beautiful, but he is faulty. Like, I mean, he's, he's <laughs> the worst. I've had a lot of cats and Norman is um, <laughs> the most unpleasant cat I've probably ever had. But having said that, winning him over, therefore, is the most satisfying experience of all the cats that I've had because most of the cats that I've had are just like hi I live at your house now and I love you whereas Norman is he's we've had him for nearly two years and the whole time he's been like why have you brought me here (laughs) grace what's going on call my lawyer that kind of like he really hates it um so every day that I see a little bit more uh, affection from him it's, it's a really beautiful thing actually so yeah, but, um, yeah, he's got, a, he's got a few fans. Norman. Um, yeah, he's got a Twitter account, Emergency Norman, which I follow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't remember if I followed that that account first or your account. Well, I mean, that's really hurtful, but it's understandable. No, no, no. I just, <laughs> I just mean because I think I think like when I found out that an Emergency Norman was your cat, like that <laughs> you were the Emergency Norman owner. I, I flipped out. I was so impressed. Like, <laughs> he's just the best cat. Like, he's I mean, pretty, if you don't have to live with him. Uh, look, and I mean, people from the internet sometimes come and meet him. So oh. people often say to me, oh, you know, I'm in Melbourne. Can I come and have brunch with you? But can we do it quite close to your house? <laughs> like, Why? Why do we need? Actually, we can just come to your house if you want. Um, <laughs> you have an ulterior motive. I just, I have a suspicion. So, yeah, people come and meet Norman. And I've got another cat, Oscar, and I've got two dogs as well, all of which are wonderful, beautiful, kind, lovely animals. And then they meet Norman and they're like, oh, he really is awful. <laughs> like, well, yeah, I know. I, like, I keep saying this. You're like, and- I have tweeted it. <laughs> Thousands of times. Yeah, I mean, I literally couldn't say it more that Norman is terrible. Like, I know, but he actually is. Yes. <laughs> yes, I know. And so when they leave, they're sort of going, oh, Oscar, Oscar, my other cat, Oscar and, and Rupert and Joss, my dogs, are all so lovely. I'm like, yeah. How's Norman? They're like, um, like, um, <laughs> yeah, he's alive. Right. <laughs> He's awful, but, um, yeah, he has his moments. He's very particular about where he will be affectionate. So he comes and sits with me every single morning while I'm on the toilet. So I get up in the morning, I go to the bathroom and I sit down and I leave the the door a little bit ajar, I have to admit, and then it creaks open and then Norman comes in and he sits on the end of the bath and he just stares at me. What? And I'm like, what do you want? And he just looks at me, but I've come to really enjoy it because it's one of the few times where he actually seems to want to be in my company. <laughs> so if I pat him while I'm on the toilet, he purrs and he wants me to and he gets his head under my hand and and as soon as I'm not on the toilet anymore, he doesn't want to know about it. It's so bizarre. <laughs> so, 
you know, but I'm calling these little things wins, I guess. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I used to have a cat that would use the, the human toilet, which was quite, you know, there's That's a scene in, uh, in Meet the Parents where yeah. the cat, yeah, I had a cat that would do that. He didn't flush, but he would <laughs> go and sit on the edge of the toilet and yeah, do his business in the toilet. I also had another cat once that used to jump in the toilet in the time between how long it took me to open the toilet seat and then sit down. In that time, he would get in the toilet. So I would sit down and the cat would be in the toilet under me. So I had to teach him not to do that. <laughs> it didn't take him very long to learn, actually, in the end, it must be said. Um, yeah, Jesus that's strange. Christ. Oh. Yeah, I've had quite a, quite a mixture of uh, personality-laden cats. Norman is something else. I've never had a cat that was so cat-like. Like if you think about the way the internet represents cats, which is, you know, they like to get into small spaces, they're aloof assholes who only love you on their terms and all these sorts of things. Norman ticks every single one of those boxes, which must be why people on the internet like him because he's just, yeah, he's exactly this kind of textbook awful mean cat. Um, But he's so beautiful that yeah. it's awful we sort of tolerate it like yeah but look how cute he is <laughs> like look at his face and his <laughs> tail and he's got these little paws and you just so it's very hard to, to think actually he's a terrible cat because his face kind of just sucks you in <laughs> just like a hypnosis kind of activity with his face like no I'm not I'm wonderful feed me Give me all of that bacon. Okay, whatever you want. <laughs> and I would, I would. I, <laughs> I do every day. Every day I'm like, have all of my things. Everything I love is yours. Do you just it's buy like... black dresses just so he can lie on them on the bed? Like, <laughs> have another one. Well, he lies, <laughs> he lies on top of our, like our clothes era. So oh. the three-tiered clothes era. And um, we have actually at times put fake clothes on the like not fake clothes but old clothes on the top to get him away from the clothes we actually want to be clean so that he'll lie on those and just destroy clothes that we don't want anymore because he, he just yeah he lies on top of the clothes era for I mean days on end like he'll get down and eat and then he gets straight back up there and the whole top of it is like a cushion it's just it's like a like a shag pile carpet it's terrible he just sheds all over him so I've given up yeah, and I just wear clothes that are covered in, in just grey and white fluff. The whole house is covered in it. It's all around the bottoms of everything, so all the oh. chairs and like the piano legs and yeah. everything that it can get caught on. It is. It's just. It's just everywhere. So if you're allergic to cats, you just can never come to my house because. Oh, unfortunately, yeah. that's me. So I'm oh, never going to well. get to meet Norman. Sorry. I mean, don't, though, anyway, because it's a really unpleasant and disappointing experience, as far as I can understand. Most people who meet him kind of, yeah, seem disappointed. It's not what I expected. Oh, probably because he looks so cuddly in the photos, but then you can't actually cuddle him. I think that's probably true. (laughs) Yeah, and then the Disney songs, I was singing, um, (laughs) singing Colours of the Wind from Pocahontas. Classic. I was singing part of their part of your world. I can't remember what it's actually. It's one of my faves. Uh, part of your world, I think. No, part of people that world, always, part look, of. I have a real. Uh, I have a real. <laughs> I have a thing about this. Okay. I can hear it. Yeah. People always think it's part of your world, 
It's part of that world, okay? Part of that world, okay. And because, here's why I'm passionate about this. (laughs) It's because people always talk about Ariel and they're like, she's not a good role model for girls because she just, like, gives up her life under the sea and her family to go have legs and be with a man. (laughs) And I'm like, she wanted that before she met him because she sings part of that She wanted that way, way before Eric was ever in it at all. Exactly. That's the whole point of, like, why she's a trouble troublesome like kid for her dad is because she's always going up to the surface because she's curious about humans and she sings part of that world and she's like i wish i could be part of that world which honestly could not be more explicit and (laughs) about what she wants and then (laughs) and that's literally there in the title yeah and and that's when eric's ship like crosses over and like casts a shadow over her and she goes up to the surface and then she rescues him so she She's actually like explicitly like, this is what I want for my life. <laughs> and then she meets a man and it just so yeah. happens that like now she's got like a motivation. And like, yeah, look, I feel like, I just, she I feel like met... Ariel is underestimated. <laughs> if she had met a merman, she wouldn't have stayed underwater for him. You so know, true. she would have been like, no, I'm going to the surface. This is what I've always wanted. But, like she probably doesn't even look at mermen. No, she's like no. I'm all about those legs, baby. <laughs> I'm a leg girl. It's a, yeah, that no, I totally agree with you. I know, really love Little Mermaid, but the um, the Hans Christian Andersen version of Little Mermaid is totally fucked up. Have you ever read it or seen any kind of animated version of it? No, someone once told me what happens in it. I refuse to read it. Yeah, like the end of it, she gets turned into sea foam oh. and dies, and that was the first time I think I'd ever really seen something like that, like a metaphysical existential kind of death in anything. And it still frightens me. Still like part of me is always worried that I'm going to get turned into sea foam. <laughs> oh my God. If I don't Look, sort of uphold my parents' expectations of me or, you know, then I'm going to be turned into sea foam. I think we're all in some way afraid of being turned into sea foam. Yeah. I think but it's it, highly relatable. Yeah, and, like, no, I, I, that's one of the reasons I just refuse to read it is because I'm, like, I already have an exist, existential crisis, like, three times a week. Exactly. I, I don't need, you know, to be worried about sea foam as well. <laughs> no, no, I don't think it was very good for my developing brain, actually. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and I was singing Beauty and the Beast from Beauty and the Beast. And, oh, good one. Um, and the other song that she sings that I've never known the name of but the one about – Maybe it's called This Provincial Life or something. But the one she sings in oh, the yeah. town, yeah, where Gaston is also singing about making her his wife. I was singing that one. And I was singing both parts, obviously. <laughs> yeah. No one will sing it with me. My partner won't sing Disney songs with me. So, you How know. How attached are you to him? Like, you know. <laughs> it's funny because we met when I sang on his metal album, which he also sang on, but yet just will not do Disney duets with me. Wow. So I feel like I've been misled. <laughs> like, I thought we would do duets all the time. I yeah, thought this is part of, you know, but it isn't. You've been caught under false pretenses. I really have. I know, now it's kind of too late. But, <laughs> like, all right, let's go back. Sorry, this is, this is all grey and I would love to talk to you about Disney. <laughs> Pro- I'll probably just, like, DM you about Disney at some point. Yeah, like, good. More, more thoughts on Disney because <laughs> the golden years were just so great. Yeah, um, I look but, forward to that. <laughs> um, let's talk about your book because uh, it's called The Paper House. It's called The Paper House. It's your first novel. Yes. And I believe it's due for publication in May 
2016. Um, yeah, so it's coming out in June, which makes it the release date is the 31st of May. Right. But, so it will be available that week sometime. Great. And yeah. it's being published with Picador Australia, mm-hmm. which is an imprint of Pan McMillan, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, Pan McMillan, sorry. Um, and I, is it is it coming out like a, can I get a physical copy or is it just ebook or what's the deal? No, 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 you should be able to get it in, as they say, all good bookstores. Good. So yeah, in theory, it will be on the shelf in you know in the end other booksellers. Ooh. So you know if you unless I've gone in there as previously stated and bought every single copy <laughs> they have, which is. <laughs> like take out a huge loan just to go and buy every single one. Um, oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. yeah, look, it's it is ex- Picador were my dream publisher. So it's amazing. Yeah, like I've always want. I, I I mean I love everything they publish. So I've always thought, oh Picador, and then when they wanted to publish it, I kind of thought, oh my god, this is like actually my first response was really this is some kind of psychotic break. I'm having a delusion right now that means that I think that my dream publisher wants to offer me a book deal. And I, I felt like that for quite a few weeks. Actually. But, um, yeah, It's but, like I'm going mean, to be so sad when I snap out of this. I know. Like, oh, my God, this is going to be horrible when I find – it's like when I sometimes think – uh, maybe these aren't my actual children and this is just all a dream and when I wake up I'm going to be like, oh, but those children that I loved and read, it was a bit like that. Um, so, yeah, so it will be a physical book and it will also be an e-book. Uh, and then what can I tell you about it? It's um, So it's literary fiction and it's about a woman who has a stillbirth at the start but then it's mostly not about that. It's not kind of here's the woman's story of kind of unpacking her stillbirth and how she feels about having lost a baby. And it's not really about that. It's more about the relationship that she had with her mother who had bipolar disorder. Mm. So it's sort of a cross-generational and it's sort of, uh, I wanted it to be almost a study in the hereditary nature of mental illness and the different ways that mental illnesses are affected and impacted by other people and especially by the people that raise you uh, and whether you, like whether any links can be drawn between the experience you had as a child and the experience you have as an adult. So that was really what I wanted to sort of think about and talk about. So it's – look – it sounds really dark and it probably is quite dark but it's got a fairly it's got bits of levity in it <laughs> there are funny bits like i've read it and i've laughed at least once um, so, you know, but i uh yeah i felt like it was important to just muse on it it's magic realism it's sort of oh, yes. um <laughs> which i I'm like i really love magic realism i love and, it yeah, so it uses different sorts of devices to talk about mental illness. Um, so, you know, I'm really interested to see whether it resonates with especially people who do have their own mental illnesses, whether they think that it's a truthful kind of representation of them. Mm. Um, yeah. That sounds fantastic. But, mm, my editor says she cries every single time she's read it. So she said to me the other day, this is the 14th time that I've cried having read this book. So thanks for that. It's like she, she's now having to, like, drink hydrolyte for dehydration. Yeah, yeah like I have to every time. 
laptops and stuff to the office and um, yeah so yeah but um I've been working on it for quite a long time and it's gone through quite a few different iterations and but the I think it's a good book now I'm really really pleased with how it's turned out so I'm very excited it's a lifelong dream of mine I've been writing and and kind of self-publishing little books since I was in kindergarten so it's Mm. a very exciting idea that it will be on a shelf and I kind of go into my local bookshop and look at their shelves and go mine will go there and they're like oh Anna <laughs> yes. so, oh, I, I just I, did you know that I'm having a book published that yes you tell us every single time you come in <laughs> luckily they're really really lovely but um yeah it's it's actually it's caused some emotional upheaval for me I think I felt very anxious lately and I think it is because it's this sort of lifelong dream realization and that's mm. quite a, a hard thing to process like here's this thing I've always wanted to happen and now it's about to and people are going to have an opinion about it or people are going to say things about it or um you know I've lost control of it now it's it's gone through its final edits I can't change it anymore it's not mine anymore and that's been challenging Mm. from from a kind of a mental health point of view and I've noticed that my anxiety's got quite bad and like all my OCD tendencies are flared up and all this kind of stuff and I think it's a control and kind of creative it's one thing to do creative endeavor kind of locally and for yourself mm-hmm. um, but sort of another thing to make it something that then belongs to other people and I mean I hope that people feel that way about it that they read it and go this is a book that speaks to me and it's kind of you know for me and it's my book but um yeah it's it's been challenging to let go of it mm. yeah and I was going to ask about that like there is something sad about a dream being realized (laughs) and frightening because it's like what do I dream about next almost yeah and I think a lot of the dreams that I've had for my life you know I've had kind of four or five main dreams that I've had since I was a child and most of them are completely unrealistic like I'd really like to sing the national anthem at the AFL grand final which will never happen because I'll never be on you know x factor which is where they get all the singers for that now (laughs) but um the fact that this one is being realised is, yeah, I sort of feel like I need to replace it with something else and that I've I've had the dream as part of who I am. It's sort of an identity thing. Like I've had this dream of this is what I'm going to do in my life and this is what I want to get out of it and this is what I want to achieve. And once it's out and I don't have that dream anymore, like what's what's the next bit or because I don't think the next bit for me is then oh I want to publish two books like I don't think that's my lifelong dream that Mm. actually yeah now that I've had this bit realized I can progress to the next logical bit which is yeah you know I want to publish lots of books because it doesn't that doesn't resonate with me and and kind of I guess my identity so I don't know but it's quite you know people often say to me like you must be so excited and this is so you know what a great thing like well it is it is really exciting like it it completely is and I'm beside myself with how excited I am but it is sort of multi there's a lot of different stuff going on with it Mm. that's tied to yeah how I understand myself and um we I don't know yeah like what to strive for and Mm. 
that kind of thing where I'm very goal oriented. And so to have a goal moved behind me is really odd. Yeah. Cause that's like, what do I shoot for now? Yeah. So yeah, you need to find like another North star to point at. Mm, yeah, that, that's it. It's sort of an orientation. Where am I, you know, yeah. Which way am I facing? Mm. How do I, how do I go towards something if I don't know? John Lennon said that the best, obviously. Um, mm. uh, yeah, how do yeah, I Yeah, when he said imagine all the people, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, but also <laughs> when he said um, how do I go forward if I don't know which way I'm facing, mm. which my dad always said to me as a child and I always thought that's really dumb. But actually I do feel, yeah, it's so self-indulgent to say all of this, like, oh, no, I have to realise my dream and now I'm really sad. I mean, that's ridiculous. But because I have identity issues anyway and mm. just, I, yeah, it's it's been a big upheaval. I've sort of gone to my psychologist and like, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I am going downhill fast. Yeah. And it's tied to that. Not I reckon, Yeah. I reckon... Uh, I don't know your psychologist, but I reckon psychologists would hear that and be like, yeah, we could see this coming. Cause like, definitely there's, there's so much like, they, they understand how, well, at least good ones do. They understand how the brain can, mm. um, turn goods into bads. And... Oh, definitely. And that's what it is. It isn't, you know, like having a book published is amazing. Mm. It's not that it's not amazing. It's just yeah, the way that your brain can process things is not always you know, real and true. And, um, I think there's an adrenaline bit to it as well, you know, yeah. like for so long that, and also that's, yeah, the fact that I've been doing it for so long also means that now I don't have it anymore. Um, which is, there's almost a grieving period after finishing it. I think she's like, I, you know, I don't have that as a purpose anymore. Mm, yeah. Um, and also I, I can't do anything more with the people that were in the book that I met and that kind of thing. I think there is a grief process to it. Yeah. So it's been, it hasn't been what I expected, I guess is what I'm trying to say, that I had always imagined that publishing a book would be just so amazing that everything would be wonderful and, um, you know, I'd be a, a critically acclaimed massive success. And, and you will be. Well, <laughs> With my, uh, my crystal ball, once I go buy all the copies, then I can also then write all of the the critique. I guess <laughs> that's right. So you'll own uh, all the books, so no one can naysay you. Exactly, no one can say any different. Sorry, <laughs> um, but yeah, there's a lot more to it than what I expected. Mm. And I'm trying not to sound like a wanker in saying all of this, but has yeah has been different. Well, you've talked about, like, online, I see you refer to it as, like, you're expecting a book baby. Yes. And I wonder, like, I'm not a parent, but I know you are, and I wonder if the, there is a similarity of the kind of um, joy and terror when you hold your child for the first time. Definitely. I remember very clearly, I had my first daughter when I was 20, and I remember we brought her home from the hospital, and she was just so tiny and she was quite a small baby as well. So she had long, skinny legs. And so she felt like not very much baby when you held her as well. My second daughter was bigger and kind of felt more robust. But we came home from the hospital and we put her down in the middle of our bed and just sort of looked at each other and said, what do we do now? <laughs> like, what do we 
we've got the baby and you spend this, you know, similar thing. You spend the whole pregnancy kind of building up to we're going to have a baby, we're going to have a baby. And then you get the baby, you go, well, like what happens now? Yeah. What's the next bit? Now we and just try not to kill it for 18 yeah, years. Well, yeah, exactly. And, I mean, when you're pregnant, you count towards this due date the whole time. Like, oh, yeah, there's, I've got 30 days to go. I've got 10 days to go. And then once the baby is born, you count away from it. And so there's not mm. like a, it's the same, probably the same sort of issue as this uh, realising your dream where you don't have a fixed end point. There's not like a, yeah. okay, my goal is that, I want to get to when they're 12 months old because this result happens. It's sort of just this indefinite, I have to keep, yeah, trying to keep this person happy and fed and alive and for as long as that is. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know that I cope very well with indefinite things. So, uh, yeah, and we put this baby down and, and yeah, we said to each other, what do we do now? I mean, we came to the realisation that we just have to, fix whatever's troubling it hmm. forever you know hmm. i think we just wait till she cries and then once she does we figure out what the problem is and fix it and then wait again until she cries and it was like that for at least the first six months yeah. we were just you know guessing hoping that we were doing it right and um so i think it is yeah i do think it is like a baby in a lot of ways because it's very disorienting to have a to have a baby and to have a book, like, what does this mean now? Who am I in the context of this new thing that is now part of my identity? Mm, yeah. You have to learn how to be. I, I mean, I still have moments where I am very surprised that I'm a parent and my oldest daughter is about to turn 13 and I still sometimes think, oh, my God, I'm a parent, and I asked my mum about it, and she, she said, yeah, I also still think that. So I asked my grandmother about it. My, my nana's nearly 91, and I asked her about it, and she still feels like it. And her children, she's got a 70-year-old child, you know, so I don't know. It's, it's a disorienting wow. experience. Yeah. Or all the women in my family <laughs> like completely deluded and out of touch with reality. Yeah, just it's just a thing in your family where no one can grasp time. <laughs> no like... one can <laughs> children at all. <laughs> all these children, where did they come from? Yeah. But that must be how. That's the only way procreation can continue. Is if you're like, um, how did I get this baby? Oh, maybe <laughs> I'll make another one. And oh, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts. But then, like six months later, how how did we get this? <laughs> And that, look, that's absolutely true. I mean, when I went into labor with my second daughter, I immediately remembered what the first one was like. But before that, I had no memory of it. And you sort of, I went into labor and went, oh, no, 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 no. actually change your mind. Not do this. this. I remember this. This is horrible. Um, but as soon as it's over, as, you know, as soon as you're well again, but it's sort of the actual pain, the, the pain memory is very difficult to hold on to different from other, you know, I've had other sorts of painful experiences that were actually more painful than childbirth. Mm -hmm. um, but I can remember what the pain was like with those. I think with childbirth, there's almost like this combination of pain and euphoria that cancels out and the experience can be very traumatic, but the pain itself I've sort of completely lost and lost very soon after my children were born. Yeah. It's got to be some kind of like, biomechanism to make sure that people keep having babies isn't that why they make babies look like their fathers so the fathers don't eat them i think that's a thing <laughs> yeah, i'm pretty sure 
we make our babies look like our fathers? Like what? So, what? So like, would I would I have to put a little mustache on my baby or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do. I don't. You have, to, you have to make sure you do that before it gets eaten. I'm so confused. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. No one's anyway. eating any babies. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to. Uh, we're sort of like running out of time, which really sucks, but. Sorry, I've just gone off on about 6,000 tangents. Oh, man, that's what this podcast is all about. It's like <laughs> it's all about tangents, and I love it. But the thing is that like, I really, really wanted to get to this and um, to talk to you about this. You mentioned um, earlier in the chat about you had a piece, you, you had like a, you had something go viral, and you, should have, you said it was shared over 40,000 times, and that would be the selfies piece. Oh, yes. that was a different, no, that was a different piece. But really? Yes. Yeah, um, yes. This is why you're a digital strategist. You're really good at the internet. <laughs> it's because I live on the internet. I'm not very good at actual life, so I have to be good at the internet. Otherwise, <laughs> I wouldn't exist anywhere. But you had, like, you had a, you've, you've write, written quite a lot about mental, mental health and mental illness. And mm. actually, when I read your piece uh, called Head First in Seizure last year, mm. that really caught my attention and made me sit up and go, I, like, desperately want this person on my podcast. <laughs> Um, and you, you, you talked about, um, like finding out how well you are as opposed mm. to how sick you are. Um, and like doing tests to see if you have a brain tumor, cause you're trying to find out like, how well am I? Mm. Um, and then you wrote an, a piece for the guardian, uh, about a year ago on what it means to live with an anxiety condition. Yeah. Um, and uh, you said, I've been afraid since before I knew what it was to be afraid, which is just like the most terrifying thing to imagine. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but like what really got picked up by like Daily Mail, Cause of Holland picked it up was, I think you did like, was it a Facebook post? Yeah. And it was in response to something the Sydney Morning Herald had published. And could you tell, tell, tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so the Sydney Morning Herald published this piece, which they've since apologised for. The author has apologised, but um, it was about it was sort of pitched as a, a, a how to for employers uh, to identify people in their organisations who were faking having mental illness. Mm. So here's the signs you need to look out for to find out who actually has a mental illness and who is pretending to have a mental illness. Mm. Uh, but it was the way that it was pitched was. Well, the way that he advised managers to act was to give an official warning to people that they thought were pretending to have a mental illness. And so I responded with, yeah, a Facebook post, as you say, with a picture of myself having a very bad mental health day, crying. It was actually after I'd read this article. So, yeah. Um, and then another one where I was on my way out to dinner with friends. So, you know, I had my hair done and I had makeup on and, um, but they were both, the point I was making was that they were both pictures in which I was mental. Mm. You know, I'm mental when I'm crying, but I'm also mental when I'm not crying. I'm still, you know, I have this illness all the time. It's not something that I turn on and off or that comes, I mean, it, you know, it sort of comes in waves, as you would know, but mm. it's always something I have, even when it's not so bad. Mm. Um, so it, that seemed to resonate with a lot of people that, you know, you can't judge my mental illness from the way that I look or you can't identify me as a mentally ill person or um, a person who's faking having a mental illness just by what I, 
look like on the outside. And also a lot of the people who read it made the point that most of the time people are faking not having a mental illness, <laughs> Yeah. <you know? laughs> so one of the things that people who have depression and anxiety in particular, I think, learn to do at work is to act like they don't have anything going on with them, you know, that they're sort of the same as everybody else. Uh, and, I mean, the thing that upset me the most about it was that we're just not that far along in the conversation. We're not post-mental illness acceptance. Yeah. You know, so the idea that we would go, oh, yeah, having a mental illness is a real boon, like, hooray, I can now get all this time off work and people are really excited to give me flexible working conditions and stuff. Mm. It's just not the reality of where we're at with it. Uh, and also the fact that, I mean, that you know, the statistic is that about one in five to one in four people will have a mental illness or a mental health concern in a given year. And so in a, in any workplace that, you know, 20 to 25% of the workplace is probably at one time having some kind of mental health concern, what percentage of those of that workplace is faking mental I sort of thought, you know, if one person in the whole organisation is faking having a mental illness versus... 25% of the workforce which does have a mental health concern and is either not supported in having better treatment for it or who uh, doesn't feel like they can talk openly about it and that kind of thing, which one of those things should we be investing more time and money into? And it would just, it seemed so, it was so mean mm. and strongly spirited and kind of, instead of helping the people who are... And I, his heart was in this place where he thought he could help people who have mental illnesses by eliminating the people who were pretending to have mental illnesses without understanding that actually those people aren't doing as much damage to people who do have mental illnesses as organisations that don't know how to support people who do. So, mm. um, Like a witch hunt in the office for people who are faking, who don't look mentally ill enough would would make me anxious to the point of quitting. Oh, it would be as well. And if someone came to me, I mean, no one will because I'm very open about it now, but if someone had come to me 10 years ago at my workplace and said, we are officially warning you because you're pretending to have a mental illness, when I had been trying to do whatever I could to fit in and to, you know, feel like I wasn't giving off the mental illness vibe, mm. would that would have just destroyed me. I mean, yeah. it's such a dangerous thing to do. Yeah. Well, these people are. I mean, my suspicion is that there just aren't that many people faking it because the benefit of having a mental illness is zero. <laughs> you know, I mean, you don't go, oh, hooray, here are all the, you know, the long list of benefits that you get from having a mental illness because it just isn't like that at all. So my suspicion is that there just aren't that many people doing this. The idea that it warrants a whole article about how to spot them is bizarre. Yeah. Uh, but that the people that you would actually then warn. I feel are much more likely to actually have a mental illness than to be faking a mental illness. Just anecdotally, just uh, yeah. knowing people who have various mental health concerns and knowing what they do to try to, not, I mean, hide, yeah, hide, I guess, but the way that they try to manage it in their workplace, those people are much more consistent with what this guy was saying are the signs to look out for than people who would actually be faking it. And, it, yeah, the whole mm. thing is just, just awful um so yeah so I did that and then um yeah BuzzFeed interviewed me and then 
the Daily Mail picked it up and Cosmopolitan and Vanity Fair and all these places that I like I had not expected to be in Vanity Fair in a, in, in Italian um, <laughs> because I was talking about mental health. But it was clearly resonant with lots of people. And the thing that was nice about it and the thing that has been nice about it generally with what I write about is that it's overwhelmingly positive, the response. You know, 99-plus percent of people say, I didn't realise that there were others like me out there or I didn't feel like I could talk about it but now I do and all this kind of stuff. And there's a very small percentage of people who are like, you're just lazy or you're, you know. Um, Mm. I had one article, that other one that you mentioned that I wrote for The Guardian last year uh, that my partner, his psychologist, printed it out and gave it to him and said, this is a really good good, um, kind of analysis of what it's like to live with anxiety (laughs) well yeah my partner wrote that (laughs) oh did she wow wow yeah okay so i mean is that not the the biggest kudos you could get (laughs) it really was it was i felt pretty good about myself oh that's amazing but it was nice to know that a that my um my experience wasn't exceptional because it is nice to feel like that when you have something that makes you feel very isolated mm. uh, and then B that I was expressing it in a way that people could relate to you know that and a lot of the I get emails from people who say I couldn't explain this to my family or I couldn't explain this to my employer or whatever but I gave them your thing mm. and said this is how I feel and it really helped me to start a conversation with them or to communicate it when I didn't have words to describe it myself Hmm. Um, that is such a great reward so yeah I mean it was it was terrifying to sort of be out as a mental person to so many people all at once I woke up on the the day after and my face was everywhere I was like oh shit (laughs) I don't know if this is a good idea um yeah I mean you know I it's a really nice feeling to sort of harbour and foster community so and that, I'm glad no and like I think that like what you say like community is more important than um saving face because which took me a long time to realize but yeah I, I wrote a piece um for Vice last year called what it's like to be yogurt on disability support pension mm-hmm. yeah. and like the day it came out and I was having massive anxiety yeah <laughs> Um, because I was basically coming out as someone who's disabled enough to claim a pension and, um, yeah, it's like, Oh, I can't, can't put that back in the box. Um, Mm -hmm. but it's out there now and it still makes me anxious sometimes to talk about it, which makes me wonder if I talked about it too soon, but, um, you know, you, you, you spend so long, um, pretending to be normal. It's really hard to let go of your facade. (laughs) It really is. It's. I, I say normal, you know, air quotes and everything. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's really hard. It's hard to like. <laughs> I just want anyone listening. I just want Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, like, everyone's normal. I don't even know what it means. Uh, this whole, like, podcast partially started as part of my journey to discover what disabled actually means because I yeah. still haven't got a good working definition of it. Mm. Uh, it just means like um, not able to do what quote unquote average people can do, mm. but like, what is that? You know, yeah. like you say, like up to twenty five percent of people are experiencing a mental illness in Australia right now. Mm. 
So Well, and the thing about mental illnesses is that even within the illness, there's a whole spectrum of different kind of experiences. Mm. So, you know, even for someone who has depression, their experience of depression is going to be vastly different from another person's experience of depression. Mm. So there's so many different ways that people have an atypical experience that I, yeah, I'm the same. I struggle to understand what a typical experience is. I mean, I know that my experience is not typical, but I don't understand what a typical one is. Yeah. And I don't know that's a very helpful comparison. But And that's, I, that's what I liked about what you were saying in your seizure piece about um, you talked about like getting, um, uh, brain scans and things like that and and he said this kind of testing is a privilege to those who don't need it it's a clarification of the things that aren't wrong a way of finding out how well you are not how sick and and that like blew my mind a little bit like and I loved that because I realized that we don't hardly spend any time talking about what a well person looks like, like mm. uh, it's always about the the atypical so so to speak experience um uh, I guess like uh fits was it fitspo stuff is yeah is probably completely um to do with what a well person should look yeah like, that might be the closest yeah 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 um what was i gonna say i had something then um ah oh, it's gone it was about that you paint with all the voices <laughs> You'll never know if you cut it down. (laughs) So uplifting at the end. Um, Yeah, I mean, and I wrote about privilege in response to that viral thing as well. I wrote an article for Daily Life about the privilege of speaking out on disability, basically. I mean, for me, it's specifically mental illness, but um, I have very little and I said this in the article, I have very little to lose when it comes to talking about this stuff. So, I mean, when I expose myself as a person who has mental illnesses, I'm not at risk immediately at least of becoming homeless or not being able to access services or, you know, being ostracised by my family or being sacked by my workplace and that kind of stuff. So um, in understanding how to to appreciate my physical wellness such as it is and you know it's not amazing but it's I'm not physically disabled I guess um in understanding that I'm not I'm not like a high risk if you're a person who is in a remote community or you're a person who can't afford to access services or you're a person who hasn't talked to their family about their illness or um then there's a very high risk in speaking out. And I think we sort of expect or demand a lot from people who aren't in a position to be able to speak openly about it and to be able to say, you know, oh, yes, I'm depressed, which for me is not a hard thing to say. But for someone who doesn't have all of the great privilege that I have just in being a middle-class metropolitan um, white person, um, there's all this other stuff that goes along with it. And that's part of, I mean, that head first piece that I did was sort of about that. Like I can afford to go and have all these tests done to reinforce how well I am, which helps with my anxiety temporarily. <laughs> I always go yeah. straight back to it. Um, but a lot of people can't even afford to understand how 
unwell they are and here's me going I just want to you know go and make sure that all my stuff is working properly and uh, it's quite I have quite a lot of sort of dissonance around it around uh, like internalized um, let me think of how I'm going to say that uh, like internalized bias against people who have mental illnesses yeah. where I'm sort of often I think like don't you just get on with it why don't yeah. you just out of the house or get up and go and do the thing you have to do and I think that about myself all the time and I think about other people as well you know sort of find myself thinking of other depressed people why don't you go for a walk like what am I saying yeah it's terrible and it's yeah this sort of being a person who can have that kind of opinion and, and that internalized um anti anti disability kind of mental especially mental disability because it's so invisible mm. but I, yeah i do find i carry that around with me even though i'm someone who expects other people to be understanding of mine and that's quite difficult for me to process like why why am i any different or why do i expect people to understand that i can't go to things or that i can't go outside every day or that i can't just suck it up and get on with it or that i can't work full time or that you know these things um when I don't understand how they apply to other people necessarily. So having said all of that, the, the nice thing about writing about it is that it's helped me to better understand other people's experience uh, and to understand it in the context of broader society and to understand it in the context of um, how people's experiences differ mm. and the spectrum of experiences and just generally to be less of a bitch about it. <laughs> It's really, it's hard to be, and one of the other things about it that's hard is to be a depressed or anxious or otherwise mentally unwell person trying to support other mentally unwell people. Yeah. I get a lot of emails from people who are anxious and depressed asking for my help and I'm anxious and depressed and I don't have a lot of help to give all the time. Like I sort of, um, not that I feel like I'm in all, not that I feel like I'm at all, qualified to give help to people mm. but in terms of being able to relate to people and to be able to support people emotionally and that kind of thing that the thing about mental illness is that uh i still have the mental illness while i'm writing about it and i, yeah. I think i've written about this before but um it's not always possible to separate the mental illness from the person like i've had people ask me if i can go and talk about agoraphobia at conferences that are a long way from my house. And I kind of think, well... <laughs> think about what you're saying. Like, just think about it for a second. <laughs> you me to go 3,000 kilometres to talk about agoraphobia. Like, uh... <laughs> say. And it's a little bit like that where, yeah, I mean, I'm still, I'm still this person with a mental illness even all the time. All the yeah. time. The, the, yeah, the point is... Here I, I, am. I don't turn it off to go to work. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. So I don't know what my original point was, if I had one, but. Um... Uh, I'm, I'm sure it was. <laughs> no, I, no, it's all it's all really interesting. And that, that reminds me of something that happened when I published that vice piece about being disabled. Uh, and if you talk about welfare, man, you're going to get some shit comments. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> and like, um, I, I try not to read the comments, you know, that's like the received wisdom. Yes. But I, I did look at the, I was looking at 
Vice's Facebook page and I happened to unfortunately see a comment written underneath the Facebook post about my my piece and some guy had written uh, something about how I was just lazy yeah and uh, how I should get off my butt and do something because mm. you know writing about stuff isn't doing something <laughs> no, um, no it counts as doing something if you go outside I have found <laughs> That's it. And like, also he, he said something about like, I just needed to go out and find work. Mm. Uh, and he, uh, I, I just like wanted to point out that, um, I got paid for writing this piece because <laughs> I'm, mm. I'm a freelance writer. So yeah, like this is as much a valid occupation or vocation as anything. Yeah. I'm like, you just read the product of my labor, <laughs> <laughs> the labor yeah. I do, even though I'm yeah. disabled. Um, you know, and also the second half of his of his comment was, um, I, he's like, I had depression and I got over it. So why can't you pull yourself up by your socks kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, so a lot of people jumped in, a lot of people like strangers jumped to my defense. So I wasn't needed in the conversation, but not that I wanted to get in there anyway. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of, a lot of people were pointing out that like your experience does not equal someone else's experience. Yes. And yeah. I, I was thinking about this, like recently about how, um, people with mental disabilities or like invisible disabilities, we tend to like constantly have to, uh, not all of us obviously, but just from people I've spoken to often reaffirm to ourselves that this is real, that Mm. this is a real problem I'm having and not just something I just need to get over. Mm. And I think a lot of it is like, um, you know, this idea that it's all one experience, but, I was thinking that if someone, if you broke your leg in an accident, like someone else broke their leg in the same accident and then your leg healed faster than their leg, you know, yeah. you, you had like a clean break and they had a compound compound fracture, but you both had broken legs. Mm. You wouldn't be like, <laughs> come on, mate. Like <laughs> mine <laughs> healed in 12 faster. weeks. Yeah. Like, what's your problem? You just need yeah. to get up and start walking. Yes. Um, like, but like for some reason, if, if like, if someone else is going through anxiety um, and I've and I've gotten through it easier than them, I've catch myself thinking, oh, come on. Yeah. You know, and it's like, but their, their brain is different. It's a different brain. Mm. It's like, it's a completely different situation. Well, and I think also it's easy to forget. Like I know sometimes my partner also has depression and sometimes we're depressed at the same time. Oh, it's and the worst. It's, yeah. Oh, it's so, so tough. Because who but, makes the tea? Well, I know. Well, see, this is why we have children. Oh. Like, oh, we're both too sad to get out of bed, so could you please bring us some food? Um, that's terrible. I don't do that. That, no, I don't. that terrible overshare thing we were talking about before, that's not true. That was a lie. No, um, I... I just imagined like um, you and your partner like in a big bed together, like in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, yeah, and just yeah. like a, a little like a little boy just bringing you <laughs> back and forth from the kitchen. A little servant boy. <laughs> um, but sometimes it does feel a bit like that. I have thought of that scene in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory before when thinking about being depressed together. Mm. So we do have a really big bed, and it's because we spent time in it hanging out. Yeah. as well because some days we kind of can't get it together but um yeah it's it is not easy to forget but it is possible to forget that someone else is having the same invisible experience a different invisible but the same invisible kind of illness uh and i find that 
you know, I'll sort of look at him and think, well, but I feel worse. Why can't you go and... But I have no frame of reference for that. I don't know what his experience is like exactly in his head. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, because you can't see it all the time, you don't kind of get the constant reinforcement. of I have to constantly remind my dad of the fact that I'm anxious a lot of the time, you know, mm. sort of go, well, can you come and do this thing with me? I'm like, well, no, I can't if you remember... <laughs> I feel like this, that hasn't, it hasn't just magically stopped. And I talk to my dad kind of two or three times a day yeah. and still have these conversations where I have to remind him. And he has a psychology degree. Wow. So even then where he's got good intentions, where we have open communication and where he actually has professional experience, he still doesn't completely recognize this kind of invisible illness that I have. Yeah. So, you know, I, yeah, I think it's very interesting. I, I think the context of mental illness uh, from other people who have mental illness is fascinating, actually, and mm. uh, I, I like talking to people about how their experiences differ from mine and how I can better understand theirs because, yeah, I mean, most of the writing about mental illness is either academic and doesn't really make a lot of sense or is really from the point of reference of someone's specific personal lived experience which mm. isn't always helpful either so as a person who writes about mental illness trying to understand what I can write that is helpful and isn't just me going I feel really sad because you know that's very easy to do mm. um understanding what's actually helpful for people is you know that's something that I spend a lot of time trying to do and find very interesting mm. what are the bits of my experience that other people can take something away from well i mean it's been so great i'm gonna have to wrap up soon unfortunately but i just sort of have one last like i guess sort of thing that i wanted to put to you um because you did mention that we haven't come that far in like the sort of national or even global discussion of mental illness Mm. to the point where we can actually start looking for fakes um which there aren't that many of uh um what was i oh god here we go (laughs) <laughs> brain fog um jesus christ i've completely <laughs> blanked um oh yeah no i just um there's like this you know there's still people saying um you just need to pull yourself up by your socks and like mm-hmm. there's still people saying stuff like um you know talking about your feelings is is contributing to the feminization of australia and mm. you know this kind of thing and like uh I guess I wanted to ask you, and, and also you, you were talking about how you can't necessarily separate the mental illness from the person, mm. and um, like similarly, like I feel you can't separate, like it's hard to separate my chronic illness from me, because mm. um, so it's such a big part of my experience, it's the mm. lens through which I view everything. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if, if I could ask you a question, if you had a magic <laughs> wand, yes. um, uh, if you had like king triton's trident <laughs> um <laughs> man i would go to ursula and trade whatever she wanted <laughs> to, like take my voice take my children <laughs> um but <laughs> if you had a magic wand um is there something that you would change about the world like about australia about society that would ease your anxiety that would make it easier for you I think the problem that I have is that actually the world is quite accommodating of my mental illness 
and which uh, that's I mean the problem that's not the problem the problem is my actual everyone stop it <laughs> please stop being so lovely and caring and nice about it <laughs> I am very lucky to have a very accommodating life situation so the actual problem is my illness which mm. and people have asked me before like if you could change it would you want to not have it um and it's such a hard question to answer because it's given me kind of empathy and insight in ways that I don't think I would have if I didn't have. I think it makes me a better writer. I think it allows me to understand other people better than if I didn't have it. But, I mean, God, I would love to just be able to go on a holiday. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Um yeah, I was reading a thing by some dude who was writing about the way that people who've had traumatic experiences write about their trauma and there was another piece in as part of this whole study about writing about a kid who had an autism spectrum disorder and that often the narrative that we have with these sorts of illnesses is that there's another person trapped inside the person waiting to break out. Like if they didn't have this illness, then the real version of them would be able to come forward. Mm. And that's sort of what I mean when I say it's hard to, to separate the two. I, I don't think that there's a less anxious version of me inside waiting to burst out. You know, the anxiety that I have relates to how I can kind of process and react to things and I you know I have panic attacks and I have heightened anxiety about lots of things but it also has influence on other parts of my personality as well and the way that I view the world and like you say the lens that I see things through and that kind of thing so there isn't really um in my personal world but I mean I think the main thing that I would like to change about people's perceptions of mental illness is really that because it's in your brain that you can think your way out of it. I think that's the main frustration that I have with it and that even I think about myself, like can't I just, if this is something that I'm thinking, can't I just change the way I think about it? Mm. Um, that if we could sort of understand the processes of thought, like the way that people arrive at the thoughts that they have, uh, and how much brain chemistry has to do with the way that we process information and that sort of thing, uh, and also how much past experiences have to do with the way that we process information. So I have post-traumatic stress disorder, mm. and that affects the way that I can process past memories but also process new information. Mm. Um, just helping people to understand all those different contributing factors, that it's not just that you're, you're like you said before, that you're lazy uh, or even just that you're sad or that you can snap out of it, um, but that actually if we were able to better support people by better understanding what they were going through, that we would also lessen the perceived burden and the actual burden that they have on um, society that, or the medical model that we have in this country. Or um, I think that the better supported people with mental illnesses are, the less kind of services we need to support low-level mental illness or, you know, in a workplace that if people understand that their mental illness will be well-supported in a workplace, all of a sudden there's less burden on the workplace because it's all, you know, it's it's documented or it has policy around it or it's supported by whatever. And, yeah, so I, I think that 
in a really, really succinct answer to your question. Um, yeah, I think just generally the way that people understand how it comes about. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like how um, we all get colds from time to time mm. um, and we can't control when it's going to come on or how long it's going to going to last. But there's an understanding in workplaces and so society that um, it's something that you need to, you know, take a break and recover from. Mm. And it's not it's not an issue. It's like, yep, you've got a cold. I get that. Um, mm. And I just sometimes think if we could have the same kind of attitude towards um, anxiety and depression, that um, it's just something someone's going through and you bring them hot soup until they can get up and keep going again. Yeah. You know, like just, I don't know. I think yeah. that makes such a big difference because having a cold isn't a disability, like because mm. society is already set up to understand what it is. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the problem with that article is really that we're not set up like that yet for mental illness. Yeah. And um, in a, an interview that I did recently on Radio National, we talked about what a workplace needs to do in that I've gone to my workplaces and said, I have a mental illness and they have said to me, what do you need us to do? And what I've wanted to say to them is, well, what I need you to do is to have policy in place already mm. to support a person with a mental illness. Like yeah. I, as a person who is having a mental health episode right now, I don't want to be the one who has to come up with the solutions for you. Like I'm happy to give my input as a kind of, you know, if you put together a committee or something, <coughs> excuse me, but um, I want you to already have that figured out. Like you know that at some point someone in your workplace is going to have a mental illness. Statistically, they're probably already in your organisation and you're not supporting them. You need to be proactive in understanding how your workplace is going to support people. And we don't have any of that yet. There has not been a single organisation that I've gone to and said I've got a mental illness and that means that it affects my work in this way where they have said, oh, yes, we already have stuff in place to support that. So maybe that's what I would like a magic wand for, mm. like this kind of preemptive mental illness stuff. I, I do feel like mental illness is still highly reactionary, Yeah, the way that we support it. Like, oh, you're having a depressive episode now. How do we fix you mm. instead of how do we, you know, foster well-being and understand what people who are susceptible to mental health um to acute mental health episodes how do we support them when they're not having one and that kind of thing so yeah it reminds me of like when i see um businesses and uh places like buildings be like um well if anyone in a wheelchair comes we'll just lift them up uh, yeah yes yeah. or we'll put down a, a bit of wood so yeah. they roll their wheelchair off it yeah yeah and it's like no what you need to do is is make everything accessible all the time you need a mm. ramp like because you know who else uses ramps people like me whose legs don't work properly all the time but uh yeah. but i i obvious. yeah like i don't i haven't necessarily like got the money to to buy a wheelchair or i don't use one often enough to make it worthwhile um but i would i really appreciate ramps <laughs> mm. yeah yeah it's about making the world more accessible well it, it's just kindness i think mm. it's just yes. kind of being thoughtful about it so yeah i think there's a lot that we could do that we don't already do that wouldn't cost very much that is just about understanding and kind of empathy and compassion 
um, that would go a long way to, yeah, like I said, lessening the burden on existing frameworks that we have just mm. because it's less of a, it's less stigma around it or, uh, or it's, yeah, less of a something that needs to be hidden, mm. less something that you need to admit to. I, I see that a lot where someone has confessed to having a mental illness or yeah. has admitted to having a mental illness like it's something to be ashamed of and I just... I don't think we need, I think we are far enough along in the conversation to be able to start talking about not needing to be ashamed of it at least, where yeah. we, we don't use words like confess to to describe the way that someone speaks about their mental illness. Yeah, they haven't committed a crime. No. Uh, God. <laughs> no, I mean, they might have. But they might not. have, but that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Um, kindness. I like that. That's a really great, that's a great solution. And big into I'm, kindness. sorry, I'm, I'm big into kindness. It's, it's great. And, um, I'm impressed that you have such a commitment to kindness, having lived with Norman for two years. Um, <laughs> he inspires me to be more kind. <laughs> turn out like him. Like He's like the, what not to do. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He's a reminder to constantly try to be a better person. Aww. Oh, yeah. Be, that's that's what we can leave everyone with. Be better than Norman. <laughs> don't be Norman. Don't be Norman. What was that meme that was going around? It was like, don't be Bill. Like, Bill <laughs> yeah. voted Democrats. Don't be like Bill. Meme, the heart of it is correct, yes. <laughs> yeah, don't be like Norman. Well, Anna, it's been so lovely talking to you. Thank you well, so likewise. much. I want to be where the people are. I want to see want to see them dancing walking around on those what do you call them oh feet <laughs> flipping your fins you don't get too far legs are required for jumping dancing strolling along down a what's that word again street up where they walk up where they run up where they stay all day in the sun wandering free wish i could be part of that world what would i give if i could live out of these waters oh my god still just the best song ever uh thank you thank you to anna spargo ryan for being today's guest uh, it was such a lovely chat with her and the paper house her debut novel is available from old discerning booksellers right now so they might still be unpacking the books today but tomorrow hit up your bookstore and go and buy Anna's book and I'll put more info on the podcast website justaspoonfulpodcast.com this podcast would not be possible without the support of my patrons on Patreon, and I would especially like to thank Chris Woods, L. Ackerman, Katie Rowney, Tegan, Kristen Bushnell, Alan Varwick, Laura Elvery, Sophie Benjamin, Lauren Pico, Jim Reynolds, Talia F.E., David Riding, Jessica Alice, Heidi, James Colley, and Leifa Singleton Norton, and so many more, too many to name. If you would like to become a patron of this podcast and help it out with a buck or two a month or maybe even $10 a month if you can swing that, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash JAS podcast and check it out. And uh, I just institute, instituted, instigated, I, I put in whatever the word is, uh, a lot of new rewards. So um, uh, there's like a new system and things you can win and um, win. I don't know, things you can get for pledging 
uh, including, <laughs> by popular demand, unbelievably, a signed headshot of myself. Um, I, I don't know. People asked for it. Uh, I was joking, but then they were like, yeah. So I was like, oh, okay. Uh, and if you pledge $20 a month, um, $20 or more a month, then you can get a limited edition Just a Spoonful poster for your bedroom or office wall uh, and the headshot and everything else. Um, yeah, please keep in touch. I love hearing from you guys. Um, the best way is on Twitter at JAS Podcast, or you can go on the pa- you can become a patron and talk to me through Patreon, um, or you can go to the website justaspoonfulpodcast.com. And yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Oh, and like, you know, go on iTunes and subscribe and rate and um, give me five stars, please, and like leave a comment because that means that we get into new and noteworthy and that keeps the conversation going. And I hope you're having a really good day and find a little bit of spoonful or something to get you through.